I'm talking with Anna Ashton, Senior Director of Government Affairs at the U.S. China Business Council, to get a better picture of what is going on on the Hill. So, Anna, what is going on on the Hill? Well, um, looking forward to 2020, I think certainly we have to start with what is the Hill going to be doing. With relation to the Phase One agreement, and absolutely, I think we can expect that there will be plenty of people on the Hill concerned with making sure that the Phase One commitments are actually met and realized, that the Phase One agreement is truly implemented.、Um, that's a good thing. Most of our member companies are at least moderately positive about the deal. About 80% of them say they are.、Uh, 80% of them also say that maybe the cost of the deal was not worth it,、um, and they certainly want to see us move on to phase two negotiations and really get more into the nitty-gritty of the bigger issues that the 301 investigation identified. But all of that aside,、uh, beyond the phase one agreement, there is plenty that I think we will be seeing on the Hill. The phase one agreement. Really, mostly、um, addressed the ongoing tariff escalation situation that we had in the bilateral relationship. Beyond the tariffs, there's so much more that's happening in Washington to do with U.S.-China policy. There's really、uh, a sort of a a reformulation of U.S.-China policy at work in Washington broadly, on the Hill and beyond the Hill,、um, and on the Hill. The efforts to to sort of reformulate, reconfigure, reconsider the dynamic between the U.S. and China as China has become more powerful are quite significant. To put it into numbers for you, the 116th Congress, the one that we're in, has so far seen at least 252 proposals、um, that somehow relate to China. Many of them aimed in a way at containing China or moderating what is perceived to be negative Chinese behavior. By comparison, in the 107th Congress, the Congress that witnessed the 9/11 attacks,、uh, there were only about 130 legislative proposals related to the war on terror. So the China scare, if you want to call it that, is very real. It is definitely driving policy on the Hill today. It is also incredibly bipartisan. Maybe one of the only things that truly、um, attracts bipartisan support and consensus in an era where. We have a lot of divisiveness between our two parties,、uh, but we are now in a new era of global tension and competition, and China has emerged as the United States' top geopolitical adversary, based on competing political and economic philosophies. So much of the legislation that we're seeing proposed on the Hill has to do fundamentally with national security concerns. Or to a slightly lesser extent, human rights concerns. National security and human rights are issues of fundamental importance, and they're also issues that Congress has historically weighed in on. So it's not a bad thing for Congress to be active on either of these fronts. Unfortunately, though, a lot of these policy proposals are not holistically accounting for America's best interests. In particular, we're seeing proposals that really don't seem to have factored in the potential economic consequences. They don't look like they were crafted with American competitiveness in mind. To some extent, I think that's because there's an element of alarm that's driving policymakers' actions.、And、what do I mean by that? I have a few examples. So, one area where we're expecting to see a fair amount of legislative activity is、um, around concerns over the active pharmaceutical ingredient supply chain, or the API supply chain. A lot. 
apparently, China has a very heavy footprint in the API supply chain. And there are a variety of legislators who feel that this raises some serious security and safety implications. There are rational reasons to want to ensure that the API supply chain globally and as, as with respect to China um, is as secure and safe as possible. But there are also some sort of irrational seeming drivers behind some of the policymakers' um, initiatives aimed at addressing API supply chains. Like, for instance, there are policymakers who have publicly stated that they're concerned China will somehow cut off all access to active pharmaceutical ingredients and devastate our force readiness, which, while it may be possible, seems like a, a very theoretical um, a very theoretical possibility, one that wouldn't happen unless we were in a really serious conflict with China, in which case we would probably have even bigger problems on our hands. The DOD and VA, if they could purchase based on value and not just price, that would be a, a very important consideration for force protection and combat readiness. And it would also direct our taxpayer money not over to, to China to build its industry, but to build it here. Another, another example, um, there is a lot of talk around legislation that would somehow restrict U.S. capital being invested in Chinese companies. Some of this comes from concerns over Chinese companies listed on U.S. stock exchanges because they're not in compliance with U.S. accounting and auditing standards. This is in some part a function of Chinese laws that impede access to certain financial information. Definitely an issue that, that the U.S.-China Business Council thinks needs to be resolved and many others in the United States believe ought to be addressed. But some of the talk around controlling um, U.S. capital flowing into Chinese companies is focused on this idea that all Chinese companies fundamentally are tied to the Chinese government and therefore any U.S. money that flows into Chinese companies is propping up a Chinese adversarial military and getting it ready to, um, to fight us in a more formidable way, which again, you know, seems like it is, it is a focus on a theoretical threat rather than uh, a real and present danger. And then third, there's a lot of talk around train and bus cars for metro systems, public transit systems across the United States, and the importance of not sourcing new train and bus cars from Chinese companies. Um, the idea there is that somehow these train and bus cars are going to be outfitted to secretly spy on the American public, which there, there may be reasons to source train and bus cars from other places, from, from U.S. companies or companies elsewhere in the world, but, but this idea that our train and bus cars are going to be spying on us for the Chinese government seems, seems on its face a little bit ridiculous. I can't imagine the amount of data that would require to <laughs> sift through. Right. How many people do you really want to watch in order to get to the two people that you're actually interested in? I don't know. So how big of an issue has China been in Congress in the past because it seems to be a relatively new phenomenon. So it is and it isn't. I think that there has always been sort of a, a, a simmering distrust of China among some, you know, in some corners of Congress. And, and we've seen that in the past in 
in other cases, specifically in cases where um, there were proposed Chinese foreign direct investments in the United States that created an outcry on the Hill. Um, but definitely the, the concern seems to be much more significant now. And in part, I think that's because there is a reality that China is a much stronger economy, a much more developed economy with a growing military and a real um, international presence in a way that it wasn't in the past. So this is not to say that it's unreasonable for Congress to be paying more attention to China. Uh, but to give you a few past examples of sort of wild um, congressional concerns about, about China and Chinese motivations. Um, Congress does not have an active role in the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, or CFIUS, which is the committee that reviews um, proposed foreign direct investment that may have national security implications. Congress doesn't sit on the committee, but Congress does um, often have things to say publicly about proposed foreign direct investments that they are concerned about. So an example, a few years ago, a Chinese company sought to buy an American pork producer, um, a famous American pork producer. And there was all kinds of outrage on the Hill in some corners over the possibility that this acquisition would fundamentally damage the safety and integrity of the American food supply. When in reality, I think the, the stronger possibility was that this was exceptional American bacon that they would like to be able to import into China more readily. And how did that case end up? Um, the bacon, bacon acquisition went through, and the American food supply does not seem to be worse for the wear. There was another case where um, Wanda, a Chinese company, sought to acquire AMC movie theaters and ultimately did acquire AMC movie theaters. During that process, before the acquisition was complete, um, there was some talk on the Hill about the danger of Wanda um, censoring American movies somehow and ushering in an era where the Chinese government was able to control what American audiences can and can't see. I don't believe there's been much evidence, if any, that that has actually come to pass since Wanda successfully acquired AMC. What has come to pass is that Wanda has shared its new model of luxury theater-going experience with the United States, which is why we can now go to some movie theaters and have reclining first-class airplane chairs and reserve our seating in advance. And then, you know, a, a more present-day example is the concern over TikTok, which is a short video-sharing app. Um, that's really popular among teenagers. There's concern there too among some members of Congress that this is an app that could um, that could encourage censorship based on Chinese government ideas of what should and shouldn't be public content. Um, I personally feel like TikTok is an annoyance because my teenagers tend to use it in class, but. The idea that it's a fundamental threat to our American way of life seems a little bit preposterous. Okay, I hear you. Maybe Congress is overdoing it a little bit. But why should this matter to the average American? That's a really good and important question. You know, managing real and likely risks is an important thing for Congress to be doing. But rushed and ill-considered policy has real consequences for real people. Take, for example, the tariffs that, that we've watched escalate over the last year and a half. 
Um, we don't have to look farther than the tariff war to see real tangible on the ground impacts. For example, we all are aware that the retaliatory tariffs on soybeans were devastating for American soybean farmers, but it went well beyond soybeans. Um, this has been an equally and even in some cases more damaging situation for farmers that grow corn for ethanol, for Washington state cherry farmers, for California garlic farmers, for Wisconsin ginseng farmers. Exports of agricultural goods from many of the big ag states were down by half or more in 2018, and we don't even have the 2019 numbers yet, but I am confident that we will see equally or worse, um, uh, equally bad or worse impacts for 2019. Minnesota, which is one of the big ag states that's been hurt by these retaliatory tariffs, its governor, Tim Waltz, led a trade mission to Japan and South Korea last year, one goal of which was to try to diversify customers for Minnesota's ag industry. And he came back saying, look, I talked to the Japanese, but they were just really clear that they can't possibly replace the 1.6 billion Chinese consumers that would otherwise be buying our agriculture products. Um, this extends further than just the farmers, too. So for example, Louisiana port workers. 60% of all U.S. ag and grain exports leave our shores through Louisiana's ports. And port activities in Louisiana account for 34% of the state's GDP and half a million jobs. If we lose a reliable large market for our ag exports, which China has been, then you know you don't have to it's not difficult math to imagine how that will impact things like port jobs in the state of Louisiana. Tariffs have also really hurt the U.S. manufacturing sector in a variety of ways. Uh, there was a Federal Reserve report released in December that showed how tariffs had led to manufacturing job losses in the United States. Um, and it concluded that the combination of increased costs of, of parts and components being imported from China for U.S. manufacturing processes and the vulnerability of U.S. products being produced by U.S. manufacturers to retaliatory tariffs had both contributed to a situation where um, jo some jobs were not sustainable. So what does that look like on the ground? Well, we can go back to Louisiana, where chemical manufacturing is a huge industry. There are 30,000 plus jobs in Louisiana tied to chemical manufacturing. And a lot of the chemicals that are made there are actually intermediate goods that are exported to places like China, where they're turned into final products. So continuing tariffs on these sorts of goods, and we do have continuing tariffs on these sorts of goods, means continued strain on, on these manufacturing jobs as well. And there are really a myriad of other examples, including many examples involving small and, and medium-sized enterprises that have been hurt. There's a story about um, a Detroit startup company creating manufacturing jobs in a place that we all know desperately needs them, um, making making bicycles in America for the first time in a long time. And yes, they were relying on some imported parts from China. Once the costs of those imports went up, it became much harder to have a sustainable business model making those bikes in Detroit. Um, another story out of Colorado Springs, a woman with a, a shoe startup company who was importing some of her parts from China, and her business was growing like crazy until the tariff war began, and then it became much more uncertain what her business's future would look like. 
So phase one, I think it's important to mention, hasn't fixed these challenges for most people because we still have tariffs on two-thirds of imports from China, high tariffs, including tariffs on 90% of Chinese origin parts and components used in U.S. manufacturing. So that's one way that a really sweeping policy, um, one that hasn't been fully thought through in terms of its impact on the lives of everyday Americans in concrete ways, um, can do a lot of damage even if it's meant to do a lot of good. Okay, so um, I'm not a Detroit-based bike maker. I don't have a shoe startup. I'm not a farmer or a port worker or a manufacturing worker. I'm just an average urban dweller. Why should this matter to me? Well, I think it's important to consider that, well, first of all, these are just a handful of examples among many, many more. Um, but all of these examples feed into what the health of our overall economy is and you know how sustainable our white-collar jobs that you and I are doing end up being, um, what the cost of the goods that we buy in stores ends up being, how affordable our everyday lives are. Uh, and so Congress is united to ensure uh, that this intellectual property theft does not continue, that we stand up to all the countries that are not playing by the rules, including and especially uh, China. There are other examples of sort of high-impact policies that, that have had a negative effect overall. Restrictions on foreign direct investment, for example. Since um, the law governing the Committee on Foreign Direct Investment in the United States was reformed under legislation that we refer to as FIRMA, um, restrictions on Chinese inbound FDI, or at least scrutiny of Chinese in inbound FDI, seems to have increased dramatically. China was the number one fastest growing source of inbound foreign direct investment before the trade war, but Chinese investment in the United Sta States fell 83% in 2018 and simultaneously went up 80% in Canada. So what does that look like on the ground? And I think you really have to look at the on-the-ground impact in, in a variety of places to see what the tangible impact is. Otherwise, we're just talking in figures and numbers and sort of ambiguous data, which uh, tells you a lot and nothing at the same time. But the on-the-ground impact, for example, in the state of Arkansas, where you have a governor who's a big proponent of foreign direct investment as a source of jobs and has led multiple trade missions around the world, including several to East Asia, and has had success attracting some big Chinese investments. You know, in Jonesboro, Arkansas, there's a Chinese-owned heavy equipment parts plant that just opened last fall. It's a great fanfare. It was a big success for the state's Economic Development Commission. It's a $20 million investment in a small state, and it created 130 jobs in an area where 130 jobs is a lot. But at the same time, other big planned Chinese investments have languished since the trade war started, including a pulp mill in Pine Bluff, a garment plant in Forest City, and a pet food plant in Danville. And these are the kinds of jobs that are um, jobs that you don't have to be highly skilled to do. They're, they're exactly the kinds of jobs that we hear members of Congress talking about the need to ensure we, we find a way to, to maintain and um, allow Americans access to. So these are jobs that, that we want to ultimately be realized. But unfortunately, tariffs have increased the expense of building out operations because building out operations involves importing various parts 
sometimes from China. Um, and they've also lowered the profit proposition for these plants, um, some of which may have been planning to export their products to China, certainly the paper mill, the pulp mill was. Um, as for that example that I talked about earlier with the Chinese, Chinese companies' rail cars and buses being used in U.S. Um, mass transit systems, it actually turns out to be the case that the Chinese company in question had invested in the United States in multiple places, and these cars and buses, the rail cars and the buses, were actually being built in California, in Illinois, and Massachusetts. So hundreds of American jobs involved in building these rail cars and buses for American mass transit systems to be upgraded. And now those jobs are at risk because of the idea that these American-made train cars and, and bus cars are somehow going to be bugged in American factories for the benefit of Chinese spies. Okay, so I have a question for you. What is Congress getting right about China? Certainly, it is getting some things right. Uh, I'm only really truly qualified to speak about you know the trade and commercial aspects of what Congress is doing. I'm certainly not able to wade in and um, weigh whether or not the approaches to national security issues and human rights issues are the right approaches, whether or not the understanding of the issues is accurate or correct, because that's not information that I deal with in my job. Um, but I also trust that you know, if Congress is getting information from our executive agencies, that causes them to believe these are concerns that need to be addressed, then they are concerns that need to be addressed. They simply ought to be addressed in ways that fully account for um, the potential spillover effects of different policy approaches, which means that um, the economic impacts should absolutely be taken into account. And that means that business and economic development agencies and others who are truly invested in the on-the-ground economic well-being of communities across this country should be weighing in as Congress considers policy solutions and should be making sure that members of Congress fully understand what's at stake for these communities as they formulate their policy. I hope that we're making some headway and helping Congress realize that we can be a resource for that. When it comes to um, strictly the commercial relationship, I think there are quite a few members of Congress who understand that the, the more fundamental findings of the 301 investigation, the competitive challenges that China presents, um, the unlevel playing field in its market for foreign companies, the subsidies to state-owned enterprises, for example, um, favoritism towards Chinese companies and government procurement, inadequate or inadequate protection of intellectual property or enforcement of intellectual property rights. All of these things are, are absolutely things that need to be addressed and that we're glad Congress continues to focus on and we're glad the administration will continue to focus on. The China Business Review Podcast is a production of the U.S.-China Business Council. You can learn more about what we do at uschina.org. If you like the show, be sure to leave us a rating and review as it'll help other people find us. Thank you, and we'll be back soon.